1: The director of the Ellison Center for Russian, East, European, and Central Asian Studies. Uh, This is the annual Donald Treadwell Memorial Lecture. Don Treadwell is a Russian and Soviet scholar who worked at the University of Washington between 1949 and 1993 and did much to build this field which we call Russian studies or Russian, East, European, and Central Asian Studies. Tonight's speaker is Tanya Merchant, who's an associate professor of music and an ethnomusicologist at the music faculty of UC Santa Cruz. Her research interests include music's intersection with issues of nationalism, gender identity, and the post colonial situation. With a geographical focus on Central Asia, the former Soviet Union, and the Balkans, she's conducted fieldwork in Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Russia, Bosnia and Herzegovina. She also plays the Central Asian Dutar and the Baroque Bassoon. Unfortunately, we couldn't acquire either of those instruments for tonight, but maybe next time. And she's given concerts in the U.S., England, and Uzbekistan. Tanya received her Ph.D. in Ethnomusicology with a concentration in Women's Studies from UCLA. She recently, recently published her first book, Women Musicians of Uzbekistan. I should also mention that I've known Tanya for almost 14 years now. We first met in 2002 in Tashkent, when we went there uh, to learn Uzbek for our own independent reasons, but we shared an Uzbek teacher. At the time, I didn't really know what I was doing, uh, but Tanya seemed to be pretty focused. I actually ended up continuing the track she started in 2002, and this goes to show that if you know what you're doing and you work hard and learn Uzbek, you can even end up with a book. Tonight, Tanya's talk is Courtyard Conservatory at the Concert Hall, Women Performing Musical Nationalism in Uzbekistan. Please join me in welcoming Professor Tanya Mershon. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm honored to be here and to have a chance to present
2: some of
0: my research to you. Um, I'm hoping today to introduce you to a little bit of music and some of that I worked with over the past basically 15 years. I spent about a total of a year and a half over five different trips in Tashkent, Uzbekistan, and I was fortunate enough to be able to bring my primary guitar teacher, who I'll introduce you to in a bit, Mankaziaeva, over to UCSC in 2014 for a series of concerts with my ensemble, Uh, the Eurasian Ensemble of Uzbek Music in Santa Cruz, uh, so my topic is uh, Courtyard Conservatory and Concert Hall Women Performing Musical Nationalism in Uzbekistan. And one of the questions, some of the questions that came up for me okay. when I was doing my research, uh, especially my dissertation research, but this is something an offshoot. Uh, I was looking specifically at processes of institutionalization, how tr- concepts of tradition became so important in the post-Soviet situation in the independence era. Uh, and during that time, I realized that I kept meeting all these women in positions of power and who were really at the forefront of their respective musical genres, whether we're talking about popular music or traditional music or the uniquely post-communist or uniquely communist and now post-communist arranged folk music folk orchestras. And so when I was thinking about what to do with the right book, I thought that what I could do best was introduce people to. Uh, these women enter their stories into the music that they play and or sing. Uh, and so that's what I'll do for you today. Uh, this is Gulzoda Pudai uh in the striped dress. Uh, she is a classically trained musician who has toyed with pop music. Uh, and if we make it to the end of my slideshow, we'll hear a little bit about her. Uh, many of you probably already know when, where Uzbekistan is, but I thought I'd throw the map up. Uh, Anyway, so the purple is Uzbekistan, Tashkent is up there near the border with Kazakhstan, and the musical traditions that are the most important when we think broadly, historically, um, Bukhara was the main center for uh, court music, one of three main centers for court music, but the one that has sort of the most broadcasts now, uh, because the Shashmakam or the Six maqams developed there. Uh, that's court music dating back to the 15th century. We have a continuous performance practice since the 19th century. Uh, and what's interesting is during the Soviet period, this musical tradition was considered at times a little bit risky. It was considered bourgeois, it was considered feudal. And so it wasn't always a sort of bastion of national identity. Um, and nationalism as well, of course. During the Soviet period, nationalism had moments of being kind of a risky thing. At other times, it was maybe less so. Um, so when you think historically across uh, musical traditions, um, one of the first questions I asked was, is there women's music in Uzbekistan? And actually, um, one of, um, when I was in London studying with my first guitar teacher, her name was Razi Sultanova, uh, she now teaches at Cambridge, uh, she actually went and emailed a very prominent French scholar of Central Asian music and said, I've got a student here interested in women's music. Can you, can you maybe help us out with some sources about women's utar playing? And he emailed back and said, what are you silly? There's no women's utar playing in Uzbekistan." So I got a little mad <laughs> and I started doing some research. Uh, and lo and behold, as you can see, Women play guitar in Uzbekistan. Actually, throughout Central Asia, the guitar is the only non-percussion instrument that has a strong women's performance practice in it. Uh, this is a photo taken just before the Bolshevik Revolution. We're not sure exactly when, by Sergei um, a prominent photographer who was uh, taking lots of different photographs at that time. Uh, this is an interesting one. We believe that this was a, perhaps a woman of ill repute because women with um, women with proper honor, shall we say, would not necessarily be willing to be photographed uncovered and so the, actually if you look at the labeling on this photo it's outside a house of outside of a women's house. So but they like the guitar, it's kind of fascinating. And one of the things that you hear about when you read sort of travelers' tales, because sort of as in in my time I, I ran into a lot of women in prominent musical positions and I and I got to learn from them and talk to them. Uh, when European women traveled to Central Asia at the turn of the century, they also had more access with women musicians. And there was actually a big fight between Annette Meekin, who's an American who traveled in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, she, would, she was arguing with another scholar that um, would scream, uh, who said, oh, there's no, again, there's no, there's no women have really boring, isolated lives. You know, we kind of see the same thing going on now. When you talk about women in Central Asia, a lot of people want to say things about their lives without actually listening to them. I didn't see any women, so I guess they're all in the way. <laughs> so uh, this woman actually went in and and talked to the women and said, you know, yes, most women in this at this time period could sing a little bit, could play a little bit on the drum or on the guitar, and you know, they would entertain themselves with music. So we have we have primary sources telling us the same thing that if you talk to the women in Uzbekistan today, they'll say the same things. That there was a time, there is this sort of memory of there was a time when there was a dutar hanging in every house, right? The idea that there was this when traditional music was just music, and everyone had some capacity to do it, and they would do it for themselves for entertainment. Uh, and so we start seeing Western documentation of this around the turn of the century. We also get audio documentation, of course, after the 1880s, uh, with the rise of the gramophone. Uh, they sent uh, the gramophone company actually sent companies to go and document both photo document and uh, recording-wise and document uh, the. The music, so that they could sell more gramophones, right? Because the idea is that the piece of, kind of like with various eye devices, right? The technology is expensive, the music is cheap, right? This is the sales model that still works today. Um, and so, in order to sell gramophones throughout Central Asia before the Bolshevik Revolution, they wanted to record local music to turn into records and sell to people. And so, this photo here, which is Tajikan Hajimetova, uh, is a... they have a recording of someone playing. Uh, and it's a daguerreotype. She's not actually holding it backwards, right? It's the photo style. Um, But here we have. That wasn't one trying to do. let Let's listen to a bit of Taj Mahal
2: 1909. Oh my. Sound Oh
0: O que é o So, here we have uh, basically a hundred years apart images of two women playing the guitar in two different contexts, right? Here is Tajahan Hajimantaba in some kind of courtyard. We're not sure if it's hers or someone else's. We can see what looks like a of loop hanging behind her. So this idea like, hey, of musical instruments hanging in every courtyard, we see actual evidence that yes, they would hang the instruments out uh, on the sort of edges of the, the molding of their balconies. Um, and here we have Farangi Ziaeva on a concert stage uh, in a regional competition she would eventually go on to win the national version of. Uh, this is the daughter of one of my DUTAR teachers, Monica Ziaeva. Uh, and you can see, they're wearing national dress and playing the DUTAR. And as I spent time, there from 2002 on, I started realizing that that the DUTAR had a lot to do with the performance of nationalism and the performance of femininity. Um, I was just having a conversation with a friend of mine today saying that I was not very good at being feminine in Uzbekistan. People were always trying to sort of fix my performance of femininity. They were trying to get me to do my hair different and put on makeup and wear dresses and pointy shoes. And my feet were not different, I wore shoes. And it just doesn't feel right. And so they were constantly trying to just mold me a little bit better because it was really I just was missing the boat on femininity. I had never been called mannish so much in my life, <laughs> um, which is kind of funny. Like, um, so, what amazed me though is here I am, I'm clearly awkward, we're having culture class, I'm performing femininity very poorly, and I pick up the duetarte and they say, oh, oh, look at you, you are the image, the pearl of respect femininity. And I'm like, Really? And she put it down and get Mesh, up? Pearl of femininity! It's, it's remarkable. But part of this has to do with the organological issue that the Dutar is considered the feminine half of the Dutar Tambur Dyad. Right? In order to play some of their historical music, you could call it their Eastern classical music if you'd like. Um, I've started to want to complicate the idea of traditional music uh, because this is court music just in the same way that Western classical music was court music back when it was court music. Um, so, if we want to think about it as Eastern classical music, that's another way of thinking about some of this music. Um, in order to play, you generally need some kind of melodic instrument and a percussion instrument. Um, although the dutar is thought to not even need a percussion instrument because of the scratching that you heard in the first recording, you know, the scratching against the dutar, it gives you a percussive sense. But in order to play Macomb, it's traditional to have at least a couple of instruments. They play in heterophonic fashion, which means that they're playing the same melodic line, but they're varying in a little bit. We'll hear an example of this. Um, and so the tambour and the dutar were thought to be a sort of matched pair, almost a married pair, if you will. I have people describe it as the yin yang of instruments. With the dutar is the feminine. The dutar has silk strings; it has a softer sound. And the tanbur, um, which you heard in some of the uh, uh, the music before the talk started, the tanbur is a metal string. It's plucked with a metal plectrum, so it has a more strident tone. As well, the dutar is a bit curvier than its tanbur component. So this male-female dichotomy comes. Uh, not just because women were also allowed to play guitar. Now, I want to bring in the issue that men play the guitar too, right? It's not just a women's instrument. In fact, if you look throughout throughout the world, there are almost no instruments that women play that men don't. And this is just straight-up patriarchy. There are plenty of taboos against women playing specific instruments, but somehow most instruments associated with women don't feminize men. It's kind of interesting. You know? so, so men who play the guitar in use they aren't early, right But as soon as even a rather awkward American mannish woman picks up the guitar, all of a sudden it's a, it, it enhances one's femininity. It's a sign of femininity. Um, and it also loops into the different ways that people participate in the National Project. Um, let's talk about the national project, shall we? Um, so the national project in Uzbekistan started really during the Soviet era, right? Well, of course that's when the rough lines of Uzbekistan were drawn around 1935, between 25 and 35, so solidified. Um, and one of the things that I found interesting was representations of women in Uzbekistan. What is it to be a woman? Clearly, like I said, I was horrible at it. So I wanted to learn about how to how to do it right, right. And here we have some images from some, some, from various eras. Uh, the World War II monument um, is the sort of grieving mother, and this is where they have the brass plates of all the casualties of World War II divided by uh, region, and uh, she watches over an eternal flame, sort of waiting for the. We assume some will never return. Uh, and then we have the Monument to Bravery, which I, I lived for a while right across from. And it always fascinated me, mostly because I never actually heard it referred to in Uzbek. This is an interesting code-switching moment. When people remember the Soviet period, a lot of the names, even if they've been officially changed, retained their Russian variants. Um, and so the Monument, right? Mucha um, Courage, bravery. But it sounds an awful lot like majestic, right, masculine. And so I always thought like looking at this, it, it's very clearly not just teaching us how to be brave, how to be courageous. It's teaching us that bravery and courage is kind of a masculine thing, right? I don't know, but, but still like women are clearly during the Soviet era, we're, we're supposed to do something. We know that children are important. And we know that seriousness, also important. And then we have the Monument to Independence and Humanitarianism, which, as far as I'm aware, was erected after independence. Um, I believe, I didn't see it for a while, but it showed up in Independence Square, uh, I think around 2000, uh, after 2005, I believe. Um, and so, this sort of tells us that things are changing a little bit. Kids are still in the picture, but there's a sort of softer quality to the lines, right? Socialist realism now not so big of an art movement. Um, but in terms of nationalism, this is telling us something. This is the monument to independence and humanitarianism, and we have a globe where the only country on the entire globe is Uzbekistan. Really fascinating in terms of what is it to be female and to perform nationalism, and sort of how does music play into that. Um, There are a couple of institutions that continue, that were founded in the Soviet era, um, and then continue into the independence era. The Alshvenovayi Opera and Ballet was built uh, in the 1930s. And um, it was really important, the creation of national opera. Um, And starting in the 30s, it really got going after World War II. Um, Buran um, by Mukhtar Ashrafi was the first Uzbek and it's a very important uh, deal that they, they take and create Western-style well, symphonic components uh, opera. And so that was built, I don't know, but that was built in the 30s. Uh, the State Conservatory began also in the 1930s, and the 1930s was a time when institutionally this idea of musical participation in, in sort of Soviet life and the uplifting of the folk musics of the region really got moving. So the State Conservatory was founded in 1937. That's not the building though. That building was built in 2002. Uh, and you'll notice the, the mirrored columns. And if you zoomed in on the plaques in the front, the English and Uzbeks, not in Russian, they say that this conservatory is a gift in 2002 from President Zankarino to the people of Okay? So, here are this is giving you a sense of what's going on with independence architecture. And smoke, glass, and mirrors is really important, as well as sort of still this knob toward classicism. All right. So, when we think about representing traditional music, um, we want to think about canons generally. Right? Many of you who are familiar with Western classical music are probably familiar with the busts of Beethoven and Bach. And, and these great men that compose music are incredibly important to the stories that we tell about music. right? And when we think about the stories that we tell about Makom especially, so this, this court music coming out of three different places, when we tell stories about makam, we tell stories of great men as well. Um, these are the Khwarezmian art masters. This plaque is hanging in the conservatory in Urgench uh, in northern Uzbekistan, northwestern Uzbekistan. Um, in, in Hogarism the region. The region. Mm-hmm. And this really fascinates me because women do play calm now, but the stories that we tell, and they remember women playing music in the pre-Soviet era, but the stories that we tell about that era are all pretty much men's stories, at least institutionally. Um, and in terms of what's interesting here is this looks to me, this this really replicates that European model of the sort of busts of Composers stationed around the concert hall, right? It does that same thing? And you have the written music. What's interesting about Horresmi and Makam is that it had a pre um, a pre-Soviet notation system. This was a tangoratature, and you see an example of that in the middle. So we can get a sense of the sort of fetishization of written music, right? This idea that there was written music before the scholars came to to um, to translate and not translate, to transcribe the music. This is really important, and we're showing up that mastery. So even though we don't have a sense of composition, right, there is isn't a sense that these pieces were composed. Um, we still have sense that writing things down is important, and great right men are very important. So let's listen to a little bit of this. Macron. These are the two women who took it upon themselves to teach me this Makong tradition. There were a lot of people who didn't think that it could be done. Uh, when we think about when we think about ethno nationalism in the face of a larger dominant force, it's very typical that things become heritage traditions, right? When we divide music into things, um, Mark Sloan divides things into affinity groups and heritage groups. So the idea is that I play Bach because I like Bach and. I recognize his universal beauty, right? That's an affinity tradition, right? I have, I guess, I, I like it a bunch, and I find it beautiful. And heritage groups tend to say, I understand this music and its beauty because of my parents and my parents before them, and historically, my people have played this music. And so what's interesting is even though it have this court music, it's treated very much as a heritage music. Um, and people often express surprise when someone not sharing Central Asian heritage has an affinity for it, right? Um, so there were a lot of teachers at the conservatory who said, you need to play simple things, like folk tunes. Uh, you know, just don't, don't try so hard, you're not going to be able to get this. Play folk tunes, it'll be okay. Um, but I was very lucky that these two women, uh, this is Komila Aminova, a vocalist, and Monica Ziaeva, uh, they took to teach me a bit of it. I'm gonna play you some of the Horesmian Makam. So we have three Central Asian Makam traditions. The Shach Makam from Bukhara, the Tashkik Furghama Makam from the Eastern Fergana Valley, and then the um, Horezmian Makam from the Northwestern part of the country in Horezma. So this is a piece, Chapandoze, from, uh, from the Horezmian Makam. ornaments, you can hear the sort of falling away, uh, you get sort of microtones as they glissando a bit and the pulsating vibrato called mola. Uh, these are things when you ask musicians what really makes something sound Uzbek or sound Central Asian, that's what they will say. They won't say, oh, it's the melody, oh, it's this Makong, even though the Macon, the pitch collection certainly did. They usually talk about Vocal timbre, the way that your voice sounds, the way that you sing from your stomach, as they say. Um, they, they say you sing from your stomach rather than from your nose or from your head, which is interesting because a lot of people who talk about this music, uh, listening to it from Western perspective, say, well, it sounds a bit nasal. Um, but it's actually the idea is that you're stretching the, the lowest part of your vocal production in the throat, and you stretch it up as it gets more and more sort of tense, and the laser beam light higher and higher, and eventually it climaxes in something called the owls, which comes from Arabic. Of course, Uh, this idea of the melody builds up and up. It's a little hard to hear in a a short setting like this. And so this is, when you talk to musicians, this is what's really meaningful to them in terms of how to express a musical sensibility that is uniquely um, and women have a role in this that's remarkably important. Women don't tend to play all of the instruments, even in this day and age. Women don't tend to play this, um, play all the instruments that support this. Um, although women certainly play the frame drum, the doira on your on on left. Um, at home, all of the professional doira players that I know are male. And it's very muscular. Um, it's played in a very masculine way. I also want to notice what's going on visually here because while I was in Uzbekistan watching people perform this music for Uzbek audiences, this was the way that it was performed remarkably consistently with women in national dress, in atlas or sometimes in adras, these different national silk patterns, and men in Western suits, sometimes with the square hats that are considered traditional well as observant. Um, And so I was really fascinated by this, because it really shows, Anna Pintop is one of the scholars who talked about, as well as Parth Chatterjee, talks about women having a sort of larger burden of performing nationalism, right? If we think within a sort of framework where women are judged more on their appearance anyway, right, then the performance of nationalism becomes really important visually. See this beautiful performance all the time. What's interesting is lately I've been seeing a lot of promotional material for groups, generally homogeneous male groups, playing mahjong internationally, and they all wear on They wear traditional dress themselves. So once you go out of country, this nationalism has a different lens. And men, especially when men are accompanied by women, they perform nationalism in uh, not in western suits, generally. Um, so let's listen to a little bit. This is Muna Jackie Luchila, arguably the most important vocalist uh, of our contemporary era for Macomb tradition. She's, um, well, I guess as big a star as a classical musician gets, um, uh, of so what is it, Josh Brogan or one of these sort of classical rock star type celebrities, that's what she is. She also plays, she sometimes will sing weddings and she makes incredible money at weddings. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about weddings if we get there, but let's listen to, uh, this is Muna Chira, and she's playing um, one of my favorite pieces of Shash Makhon. so it's from Bukhara, she's playing Mogo China Ball from the third Makhon. Uh and this, the poetry from this, the poetry that accompanies the vocal portion of this makam is all romantic, sort of Sufi poetry. This, specifically the poetry for this piece is by Munis. Nice. Uh, who's a 19th century Chagatai poet. It's interesting though, because of course this is just the Uzbek version, what's unique about the Chagopat especially is that there are two language variants. It's some in Tajik as well, there's Tajik poetry and Uzbek poetry, and it was a really important moment when they codified the Uzbek poetry as well. Um, the idea is that in the in the sort of pre soviet era, musicians were bilingual, sometimes very much multilingual, and they would sort of gauge the audience and sing whichever poetry they thought the audience would resonate with. They thought the audience, if they thought that mostly it was Tajik speaking listeners, they sing in Tajik, but mostly Uzbek speaking listeners they sing in Uzbek. Um, but then after after during the Soviet era, once they broke up Russian Turkestan in that sort of pre-World War II era. Uh, sort of project, it was really important to have a separate repertoire in the Tajik language and the Uzbek language. And even now, when it is named a masterpiece of intangible heritage by UNESCO, there needs to be a big fly as to whether it's the Uzbek Tajik Shachmukkam or the Tajik Uzbek Shachmukkam. These issues are... Um, anyway, let's listen to a little bit of of Mogotai Nabo. And you can, you'll hear the same thing, this is a larger ensemble. You'll hear a, a series of string instruments, hammered and plucked and bowed, accompanied by a frame drum, and then you'll hear uh, Munajepi Luchila starting in the very bottom of the vocal range and building gradually up higher and higher. This uh, is Safi Suwara by Fuzuli, um, another Sufi poet uh, from, in this case, the 15th, 16th century, uh, performed by Sanobar Karimova. and this will also give you another sense of the sort of way that women are performing nationalism and how there are sort of hints about maybe Islamic architecture and the way that they set the stage. It's very clear that this is meant to be A secular manifestation, though, of this particular music. Um, And well, let's just watch, I hope. Um, ensembles, and reworked certain folk songs and whatnot, I
2: think we're going to move on to
0: that next, which is the Dutar Ensemble. Okay, so we are, we talk about the calm tradition in the sense of sort of a very blatant performance of history when we we're performing in the independence era. What's interesting here is that that's not the only manifestation of the Dutar, or the only manifestation associated with women. Uh, one of the interesting things was the um, Dutar Kuzla Ensemble, which that word cuz really tells you a little bit. It's not the old lady ensemble. It is the sort of young girls, right? The sort of I don't know, unmarried women, well, or something. It's the girls' ensemble. And they kick you out at 30. Gently. They, they move you over to other. They transition you to other things, right? And so this idea that the dutar, in this case, is associated with youth and with women in larger numbers. So this is actually off of a textbook. They have they have textbooks for dutar ensembles. I happen to know the the, the girl, now woman, in the middle is Zulfia. She's a student of one of my other teachers, uh, um, and so I got to meet her. But her photo was on the, the picture of the textbook for dutar ensembles. And you can see, once again, we're kind of smiling. And we've got national fabric. This is a rehearsal, so we don't need national fabric in the rehearsal. That's that's what's going on up there. But this is a this is a rehearsal of the state guitar girls ensemble. So at all levels, you have these generally girls ensembles, and the, the music that they're playing ranges from. Traditional music, they don't tend to play makam in this, though. although uh, my, my the teacher who taught me makam, Monica, who you saw in the previous slide, does have mixed-gender ensembles that play makam on a line of guitars. Um, but these girls' ensembles tend to play folk music, they tend to play arranged folk music. So to take you through this, in the 1930s, um, a man named Ashok Petrosian, technically Armenian, uh, it was a well-known acquisition, um, someone who works with acoustics, and he set up a lab in the newly founded uh, conservatory in Tashkent Conservatory at the time that it became the User State Conservatory. Uh, and that lab is still in existence. And these whole orchestra is that he created is still in existence. How many of you have ever seen a bottle like light? All right, got some bottle light containers here. All right. How many have you ever seen, like, you get bottle of in different sizes? From like the baby battle like that, and then you get like a slightly like bigger battle like that, and then you get a bigger one, and then you get this giant bass battle like it. Has anyone experienced the bass battle like that? Oh, you must try the Russian army chorus of songs. There are various songs that, that give you the. That was actually pre Soviet, it was invented by Vasily Andreev in Russia in the 1890s. Um, but it didn't really catch on until the Soviet era when they said, Wow, we are ready to make music that conforms to this ideology that we lift up. We lift up the backwards peoples. We lift up the, um, the workers, right? And so we want the music of the workers and peasants and the proletariat and we want to lift it up to an international standard. And what is that international standard? Any go. Russian music, yeah, Chekhovsky, the big handful, right? Right? Western art music, symphonies, right? So we took in the well, this didn't just happen in Uzbekistan. This, this happened in Kazakhstan, this happened in a lot of places, and it happened in Russia with the bellalika, right? And you didn't you used to have the baby like the and the bigger bellalika is prima and then alt and then tenor and then boss, right? So basically if you think about fire, soprano kind of alto, tenor bass, they did the same thing. Or if you think about the violin family, they basically turned a lot of different groups from a lot of different regions into that violin family. So you get families of dutars. I'm not sure you can see it necessarily here, um, but you might notice here she's playing a reconstructed uh, tenor dutar, which is the size that, uh, that everyone plays. Okay, I want you to notice the machine tunings up there, right? So like the tunings on a guitar, the metal machine tunings. Traditionally, um, I'm not sure we get a I don't know, the picture of Michael. I might not have it. If you look at the fire, um, the poster has a picture. You can look at the tunings, and they call them ears, and it's because it's just a it's just a peg a tension tuned into a hole drilled in the neck of the instrument. These are machine tunings like a guitar, right? This is how we lift up the music is we make it technologically more advanced, right? These are problematic terms. I want to be clear: advanced, modernized, right? Um, and we add nylon strings instead of silk. The metal strings were a problem, but the idea was they wanted to create these violin families out uh, of these instruments, and they wanted they, to give them a sound that would project through a concert hall. So they did all of these... Very- they also One thing I can't really figure out why they did, but they did it. They fixed the frets. If you look at the traditional guitar, it has tied frets. They used to be gut. They used to be tied gut frets. Now they can use fishing line. Um, but they tie them on. And the idea was that as the weather, because the weather and attachment varies a fair amount, right? As the weather changes and this living wood warps and wets, right? You need to be able to adjust so that you can stay in tune. But the idea was that it was a little too flexible. So they nailed down the frets to match with equal temper tuning, right? So if you think about the notes on a the piano, they now added, they had to add a couple frets to make sure that you got all the notes on the piano that got a chromatic scale. And they did that with the guitar. So you can see that this, all of these guitars are reconstructed guitars with machine tunings and nailed-down frets. To the to the sort of to the general public, this is meaningless. A guitar is a guitar is a guitar. But to performers, this is a really important difference. And the sounds is really quite different. Let me play you a little bit of this guitar ensemble music. This is Zulfia Siach, it's a composed piece, so already we're in a different framework. It's a composed piece um, dedicated to Zodfieh Israel, who is a female poet who lived from 1950 to 1996, and she's now, uh, her name is used for a women's prize in Uzbekistan, so she's one of these important figures. So this is um, in sort of in in honor of Sophia. the instruments that they're playing. Um, it hasn't, yeah. It's complicated, these ensembles. Let, let's watch and then we'll talk about it. If I can convince them. So this is the, the Young Women's dutar Ensemble. I believe this, this was released uh, as a re-release in 1991. Um, it was, let me see. Yeah, it was released in 1981 under the video label Russian Folk Song and Dance. It was originally folk music of the Soviet Union. It's narrated by Tony Randall. But the narration is a little problematic. The title of the piece he calls Ganovar. It's actually Tanovar. The specific Tanovar they're playing is Adolat Tanovar, uh, which is a very well known classical piece. It's not within the Macomb, uh, but it's considered sort of one of the, one of the associated pieces.
1: These young girls gliding through a world in blossoms. Sing of love and their dreams of love. The song is Ganopar, a gift from early Uzbek days.
0: the same voice guitar in this case, and this is one of these moments of tension, is this, because capitalization, especially within institutions, is really important, is this ensemble traditional, or is it arranged? And there, there was this moment while I was there in 2008, where uh, the idea is that historically it has been a traditional ensemble that has played this type of music, and it has only used that sort of tenor guitar, what's considered a traditional music. Um, in 2007, one of my teachers, who plays arranged folk music, Rosalie Gojia, took over for that ensemble, and it was considered a bit of a scandal, because she brought in some of the higher pitched, some of the reconstructed instruments. She didn't mind if the people who played the tenor version played the one with fixed frets or the one with high frets, uh, and they started playing some of that composed repertoire. Uh, and it was considered to be a really big move toward toward this arrangement that really is a Soviet sort of, I always, uh, one of the things that amazed me is that this really didn't, I, I really wanted this to be a Soviet relic, I suppose. I just heard it and I'm like, this just, this screams socialist realism,
2: right? It just,
0: it screams Soviet nationalism and their whole sort of multi, take on multiculturalism, right? And so I, I really didn't understand why this continued to be so important.
2: But I realized that I needed to listen
0: because it was so important to people. And what is interesting is there was a shift in rhetoric. The discourse around these ensembles shifted, and all of the arranged folk music, both these new tar ensembles and what we'll talk about next, um, the shift and the folk orchestra we'll talk about after, the shift was from lifting up the music of the peasants and all the problems that come with that. And it became, if I need to live for a moment, it became folk orchestras as a gateway truck. Right? People are gonna this is for an international audience who wouldn't understand Macomb, who wouldn't understand these court genres, and probably wouldn't like them if they heard them. So folk orchestras use equal temperament, they use a symphonic style that international audiences so folk orchestras are a gateway drug for Macomb. Right? We'll get them used to it with folk orchestras. We'll do outreach with folk orchestras. And then, if they're interested, they'll go on. I, I, I sat and interviewed, um, well, who we'll talk about in the data a conductor, who actually founded one of these reconstructed instrument folk orchestras right as the Soviet Union was collapsing. She founded it in 1990, 1991. Um, and she sort of said, you know, well, Tony, you're a specialist. Like, you really like my mom. But not everybody likes Macomb, a lot of foreigners don't get it. And also, Macomb shouldn't be an artifact, right? It's a national treasure, but it shouldn't be an artifact. It should be allowed to live. And in her view, being allowed to live means being arranged in four-part harmony and being played on instruments that have been modernized. Yeah, um, And this it's, this international orientation is really interesting, but it is an argument about why these orchestras continue to be legible. And what's interesting is, again, women are at the forefront of a lot of these ensembles. So this is a guitar ensemble. This is my teacher, Rosie Guhajaya, right here. Um, and she, uh, not only does she lead scores of ensembles, but she was the one who became the leader of the, the state ensemble associated with the state radio station. Uh, she also leads an ensemble in the Japanese Business Center, uh, in the sort of smoked glass business center area of um, of Tashkent. There are these large sort of green glass skyscrapers, uh, and in there is a Japanese Business Center. And the way that she explained it to me is that well, these wives accompany their husbands, their Japanese businessmen, to come to their business, and they want to do something, so they take dutar. And great, I mean. My mother did a similar thing in Alaska. When she moved to Alaska, she did a Russian folk dancing. She's not Russian. But that was what the wives of the folks in town did. Did a Russian folk dancing. So the Japanese businessmen's wives play guitar. And there was one guy who was excited about it. She's like, I have one name. I'm curious, yes. Yes. Um, but so what's interesting here is that yes. So twice a week, I believe she rehearses with the, the women accompanying their business. And what's interesting is they sometimes they'll go back and they'll come back, but there's actually a real enthusiasm now for guitar in Japan, apparently, or maybe a small enthusiasm with a niche market, shall we say? Um, but yes, yeah, she carefully teaches them again on these reconstructed instruments to play to play this music, and they even play. Oh, I didn't write it down. Um, They even played Japanese folk songs on it. Um, They played, they thought that there was a great um, similarity between this and especially the, um, I think, the Okinawa chanson. And so they played Okinawan folk songs especially. Um, yeah, it was fascinating to me. So again, a shift in the independence era toward an international orientation. Not that the folk orchestras didn't already have an international orientation, because this idea of an international standard represented by Western art music is already an international term, but it's it, there's a there's a subtlety to that that I want to pick up. So not just Utah ensembles. Um, let's skip to this. The, it's also folk orchestras, right? And so here we have Firuza Abdurahimova with her, her, she founded the Soviet Folk Orchestra um, in about right around the turn of the fall of the Soviet Union. And that really, again, it fascinated me because this has such sonic associations with Soviet projects. But she is one of the people, right? Yeah, women are at the forefront of this, of bringing the idea that this isn't just the sound of of sort of Soviet projects in Uzbekistan. There's something uniquely Uzbek about this, and it's important. And this is a good shot. You can see the uh, the bass guitar right there. It's really big. Um, But anyway, so let's listen to a little bit of the full orchestra, because this, I think, maybe gives you a better sense of the Western harmony that that you're listening to, but with that slightly different vocal, that different instrumental timbre that you get from a series of plucked instruments. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you. about and she's of a generation, right? She was really selected. It was and some of the other women that I've worked with were really selected after World War II. There was a real push. We can think about the push for women's liberation, as problematic as that may be, in a variety of places, including the U.S., right? We can think about that project beginning in the 1920s in Uzbekistan with something called the Hujum. Right, the assault, Mary Camp writes about it, that was Northrop as well. Uh, and it was this idea that we're going to bring women effectively into the labor force to accomplish fighter plans, right, and become productive members of Soviet society, which meant labor, right? Um, and of course, home labor didn't count, right? Double word means forever. And so in the 1920s, that meant you had these sort of production style unveilings, you had public unveilings, and you get, at least if you, in Norfolk and Camp's work, you get people sort of very performatively taking off the veil and throwing it on the and going home and putting it on. And doing it again two weeks from there. Um, interesting. What's interesting is though, that moment, this moment of throwing off the veil and showing your face on television or showing your face in the concert hall, this is a really important symbolic mm-hmm. moment for a lot of the women who are currently in positions of power in musical circles in Uzbekistan. A lot of them say, my grandmother threw off the veil, and now I get to do this. I get to go on international tours. I get to play at the concert stage. This was a really important symbolic moment. And then in terms of many of these women who were school age or so after World War II, or sometimes a bit later, um, this push in the 1950s and 60s not just to bring students from the provinces, I guess, students from rural areas into the city to specialize in music, but specifically female students to select them and bring them into the conservatory, bring them in, and have them become specialists, usually in either classical music or um, or Arranged um, folk music, the department of traditional music in the conservatory, and it was institutionalized during the Soviet period, that did not open until 1970. So, if we're talking about bringing women or female students into the conservatory at the time, we're really talking about either arranged folk music or Western
2: classical music.
0: Um, so, when we think about women who participated in that poll, Dilbar Abdurrahmanova is a really important figure. She is the director of the al Opera Al-Shanai Ballet. Um, and I wish I had a recording of Buran or some of these Uzbek operas to play for you. I cannot find them. Um, they're really hard to come by if you don't have connections in the archives in the uh, Radio. Uh, lo and behold, they aren't on Decca and Nassos. You, know, you can't really get them here. But anyway, Duba Ali was is a really interesting person, and, and I really wanted to include her in my book because I realized throughout my research, Western art music was sort of the elephant in the room that everyone ignored. I spent a lot of time working with folk musicians, with, um, with traditional musicians, and even people who were making forays into pop music. Uh, and literacy, musical literacy. Once again, we get into this importance of written music, right? This codification moment, but not just the fact that it's been codified, but that as a musician, you are, you have prestige because of your capacity to read written music. You are musically literate, right? But Russian, again, if you think about the code switching, people don't talk about musical literacy. It was they use the term right? I'm grammatical, if you want to have a translation. translation. Right? I understand musical grammar, which you guys can read the notes on the page. This is important. I'm a real musician. I am um, And speaking of code switching, Dubara uh, Burakhlanova, she's an incredibly prestigious, woman. She, she was a student of, again, a composer of the first music of Mukhtar who was also the director of the conservatory, who also sort of founded some of these ensembles. She took over for Mukhtar Ashrafi as the director of the Abishan Nawi Opera. I believe she took over in nineteen in 1960. And that made her the first female conductor of uh, a large ensemble, a large western music ensemble in all of Asia right? And she has something to say about that. Do, do, do you all know who Valentina Tereshkova is? Okay, you know who. Tell me, tell us. The first uh, woman uh, astronaut. Yes, yes. the first, first woman in space, Valentina Tereshkova. My favorite quote in all of my interviews. This is what she had to say about stepping up to podium in 1960. She said, when Tereshkova became an astronaut, she sat just once in a spaceship, when she returned, she became the first woman in space for the rest of her life. I was the first woman conductor to stand at the podium. Every day for 48 years, I have stood at that podium and demonstrated this. This profession is such that if you stand up and make one significant mistake, then you lose everything you've built on until then. Therefore, I surmise that I have the most crucial profession in the musical world. Right? She is like Tierschkova in the cosmos, except every day for 48 years. Right? If she steps down, then nothing. And I think this is this really tells you this tells you something about the grit of women, especially who were selected in the nineteen fifties and sixties to be part of the conservatory, to be part of these projects. They have a lot of grit. They're really proud of their significant accomplishments, as they should be. Um, and they also speak a very sort of they they understand the importance of being the first woman in space, right? Not sad. Um, and so I was really interested to talk to her and listen to the way she talked, it. but it was also really curious. As we started, I generally would open my interviews after 2002 my in my Uzbek, but good enough that I could get interviews in Uzbek. In 2002, I had to do it in Russian, and now I have field interviews where people in the background in Uzbek are telling people that my Uzbek was very good. I'm not understanding what I in Russian. such a Eventually, around 2003, I started doing interviews in Uzbek. This was one of the moments where she sat down, and she said, We shouldn't speak respect. Let's speak Russian, it's an international language. You know my ensemble? We have Ukrainians, we have Belarusians, we have all these different people, and so of course we're an international group doing an international project. Of course we should speak Russian, it's an international Right? So this wasn't even the code-switching that you saw. When people Often when people speak about their memories of the Soviet period, they switch into Russian, or they sprinkle a bunch of Russian words in because they're thinking, right? Even though they speak, it was like in their everyday life, those Russian words just come to the forefront. Um, and so, yes, in terms of Western art music, women were even at the forefront of these national projects to perform. Although it's important to note, when we think about the busts of important men, right? I was, I was really struggling to find female composers, right? So just as we have issues in in sort of Europe and other parts of Europe, Western Europe and the U.S. of male composers make up that canon, it's very much true. Even in Uzbek classical music, it's Ashrafi and a few other uh, male composers who are writing the music and it's the women who are doing the interpretation and garnering a lot of power and prestige in that world. Um, let's
2: see, how are we
0: doing enough time? We're good? Do we have time for wedding music? Sure. Sure. Um, maybe we'll skip the super medium music, but let's at least talk about wedding music. Um, this was the other thing, this is what I thought I was going to do for my, for my research in 2002 was, was go to wedding music. Because everyone, everyone thinks weddings are important in Uzbekistan. It, it amazes me how nationalism is often sort of the tip of the tongue, right? If you're when if you're a foreign army's you're always asked, Oh, have you tried our national dish? Have you tried our Legos balls? Right? Have you eaten it? And everybody likes it too. It's kind of like pizza. You don't you don't hear a lot of people going, on And everybody likes it. They often eat it on Thursdays, right? And it's this but the first it isn't have you tried this thing, it's very two seconds. It's a national dish. Right? This national project is at on the tip of your tongue. Uh, And the same thing with weddings. That was one of the questions I got. Not just have you eaten pilaf? Have you come? Have you gone to a wedding? If you're going to understand Uzbek culture, right? Go to a wedding, right? And and there's a lot of discussion now, especially because there's now memories of red weddings during the Soviet period. There wasn't as much of a of a of a performance of tradition, and so you see people in the white. I call them the red cookie dresses, but you know, the big white wedding dress, and they march to different monuments, and they put flowers on monuments. And they still do it, right? Because red weddings are cool too, right? We don't have to just have one thing. But then there's also this this sort of performance of tradition, this idea that you bring it back. Um, and so weddings are, over the course of multiple days, you first seal an engagement, and you can have songs about that. And then you have the morning of a wedding, you serve pilaf. peel off, Really important to the entire neighborhood men of the entire neighborhood. And what's interesting is that Pilaf, you, know, you always pay people to come and play Makon when you serve Pilaf. I have no idea if this was traditional in the pre-Soviet era, but in modern day Touch camp the idea is that you play Makong with your Pilaf at 5 a.m. Because that really I, I just yes. So and I wasn't allowed to participate in this. Like I couldn't get in line and get my bowl of pilaf, No. But I could watch from the apartment windows and I could listen because they were um, this was still mediated even though we're talking about traditional music, they would um, they would like it and add reverb and glass it through speakers um, at, at the early hours of the morning it and that's how you knew well and even before that they would announce it with the long trumpets and the shawms, right five by And so that's how you knew oh there's be off there if you're okay <laughs> right. but only if you're man. Uh, and then so that was one moment where traditional music comes in, and then you have the nipochoi, the actual wedding ceremony that usually happens at night, and there's the processional music to go from the bride's house and to uh, to the, the groom's house, where she would assumingly live all the not all days in contemporary life, right? And then the morning after to celebrate the sealing of the marriage, you would have the greeting of, of the bride, and that was the event that I spent the most time going to. It's called Kevin Salon up there, the greeting of the bride. It's the idea that now the bride has moved into her new house with her husband's family. And so all the members of her husband's family, as well as usually her friends and her family. But it tends to be a woman's event. There tends to be a lot more women than men. And the men sort of hang out at the outskirts. Um, and they, but they get the best presents. They always seem to start with the grandmas. And you'll listen. Let's listen to a little bit of what's important about this is you sing seeing Kevin Sal, right? You don't just go up and say, hi, howdy, how are you welcome to your family, right? You sing Salom, and while you're singing Salom, your aunties take you to the threshold of your room, it's not actually your room, but it's your room for that time, right? And they help you bow to each member of your family, and they give you kisses, and they give you a present, and you give them a party favor, right? Usually like a little napkin, embroidered bath napkin, or something small, um, and so... This is the Salon, and all the while, everyone's processing up. And sometimes we're talking about dozens and dozens of people. There's a wedding musician extemporizing couplets to musical accompaniment and singing. The chorus is usually some variant of or something like this. This is actually a different variant. But they sing it, and they play it. And there's a verse for every member of the family. First, you greet God. Then you greet the prophet. And then you start greeting the members of the family. And it was really interesting. So this is Rosa, again, the woman who taught me a lot of my guitar playing. Rosa and Anka uh, were, were the two primary teachers. But she let me tag along as she played weddings. But actually, I became her daughter player. She got very proud of that because people would ask, what are you doing with a Russian daughter player? She that's
2: not my That's not a Russian. That's my American
0: not my, That's not to me
2: thing. Uh, but anyway, so she's playing
0: these various wedding ceremonies, although at least when I was doing the bulk of my wedding music research, she seemed to get called a lot for these Kevin Salons, and I think it was because she was really good at it. She would, as they were drinking tea and enjoying some sweets beforehand, she sort of talked to everybody, and you could see her making little notes, and she'd note down all the different people that she'd be called. And so let's listen to the first three couplets of a um, of a Kevin Salon over here. Uh, first, it's all guys. To God, you give the first bow to God, right? You greet God first, and then to our Prophet, And then it's to your grandmas. So the grandmas go first. And what you don't see is that after the grandmas go, then usually all the women go. And then the men start going, and the men have the best presence. They have a giant robes and the giant televisions sometimes, big screen TVs, and I'm like, what well, is is it this bride is like, gonna be watching big screen TVs? So it's a really good way, if you want a big screen TV, throw a wedding for your family, <laughs> and then you're gonna be it's a present. Right, it's amazing. No, I, I, I bet, I do know, a lot of people would wish they had that game, Um anyway. So. <laughs> Right? Going through one of these processes as a bride is really important, right? The act of getting married is very important. But also having these kinds of moments, and you need women musicians to play it. Because this is considered sort of women's space, the, the different moments where you call a bunch of women together, it's thought to be somewhat improper to have male musicians accompany the them. So you really want at least the head musician needs to be woman, and that's why that's why Rossofo was able to make so much of her sort of non-conservatory oriented career out of playing his Keny Salon and a few other women's um, she also played the Nikof the, the the they're sort of mixed gender so if the morning pilaf eating is a men's event then and the Keny Salon is sort of a women's event then like the Nikof the, the night of would be a, a mixed gender event although sometimes they would split them into women's halves and men's halves uh, although usually it would be sort of musicians in the middle. Um, although very, um, very devout people or people who wanted to really think about tradition often actually had separate, separate simultaneous celebrations. Um, so that's that's wedding music. Um, maybe we'll do one last thing just to get back to Zoda Hudoy Nazareva who also played weddings. Kudai there is one of the most interesting figures that I got to speak with in uh, over the course of doing interviews for my book and getting to know people. Uh, she was a student at the conservatory when I first started doing my research. She studied in the traditional music department. She learned about home. This is very important. That's one of her passions. Um, when I went back to do some supplemental work uh, in 2008 and 2009, um, she had, well, in 2005, she had a giant concert. That's where this came from. Uh, in the Friendship of Nations Concert Hall, so I talked about this a uh, concert hall or uh, narodov. I think we tend to have a narodov in most in most major cities, more major parts. so the friendship of peoples. What's interesting is they changed the name now. It's um I don't know that I have it written down. But they changed the name to like the creative workers hall, but everyone still calls it everyone still calls the friendship of people's Hall, And I remember talking to people because I was surprised when it happened, I think, 2008, 2009, and they changed, and I don't know what's going on. And, and, and people were like, yeah, I understand. We don't want any concept after Marx and Hitler, people. What's the matter with international friendship? Um, at least that was the, was the word on the street to each So, Huzadoglu and was trained as a classical musician, and then she sort of made a brief foray into pop music and sang a lot of these, uh, especially she would include sort of the, requisite patriotic pop songs. So if you think about musical nationalism being more nuanced than just singing patriotic songs, which I hope this presentation has maybe convinced you of, uh, we mustn't forget that singing patriotic songs is part of it. Uh, And so she would sing some pop. This This was a really interesting moment as it sort of foregrounded some of that nationalism but it also really foregrounded regionalism as well. She is from Buhara originally, and you could tell there were a lot of Buharaans in the crowd, and every once in a while she would, she stopped at a moment and said, is anyone here from Buhara? And everyone went, woo! And it was this great moment. As you can see, it was a packed house. Right? And so what was interesting to me is she sang some pop songs, especially these sort of uh, patriotically inflected pop songs, but then she also sang traditional music to this huge audience. And she had this sort of balance to do. And so, oh, uh, maybe we'll listen at the end. I'll wrap up just briefly. And so what was fascinating to me, she had this moment of sort of foray into pop music. She started singing weddings, because singing weddings is really important for how musicians make money, right? The salaries of the conservatory, even if you get something as prestigious as a conservatory position, right? The salaries are still not really a living wage, or it would be a very challenging life, I say. Whereas you could make a week's salary in a night if you go play a wedding. Um, and so uh, she would play and sing weddings. It's often thought of as sort of unfortunate for women to have to play weddings. I never heard this about men. It's like well men either are not wedding for their family. Um, but it was always there was a little bit of clucking, you know, sort of tutting about oh women who play weddings, women who have especially single mothers who have to play weddings. Because um, there's still this idea that it's a risky moment. If you're playing so close to a bunch of strange men, somehow a concert hall sort of insulates you a bit, right? It creates this illusion of space, right? But playing weddings, you're you're kind of up close and personal with all these strange men. It's a little bit iffy, right? And strange men is exactly how they can talk about it. You're coming in contact with all of these strange men, unknown men, shall we say? Uh, so she started playing weddings uh, and a little bit of pop music, but still, really, her passion was classical music, uh, Marcon, and Eastern classical music. And so when I interviewed her in 2008, uh, she went to great pains to say, no, I'm not a pop musician, I'm a classical musician. And even when I play writing, sometimes I get invited to play the Morning Osh, the Morning Pilaf, which I had never heard of. I said, really? You play Morning Pilaf? That's just for men. She said, yeah, I can do it. I've seen Marcon at Morning Osh. Wow, i wow, I've never heard of that. And boy, that must have been quite a coup for the people who got to hire her for morning pilaf. Um, but um, she would sing other weddings as well, which usually, as with even the Ken Salon that we saw, right, the ritual would happen. And you'd sing it with a guitar, And then she'd plug in her music player. And you'd get pop tunes. And everyone would dance pop tunes. And you would tip the dancers. And then the dancers would give the money to the musicians. So it was quite an economy. If you were good at getting people on the dance floor, you would make a lot of money. And nothing made more money than get the grandmas on the dance floor, (laughs) right? If you could get the grandmas on the dance floor, they would just, like, rain money down on them. And so what got the grandmas on the dance floor, usually, was kind of what we heard in the video, right? So you had to have this fluency across these genres. And really, Guzova Hulana Zara would typify that. So even as much as these categories were really important as ways of performing nationalism in different guises, right, with different nuances, Different ideas of modernity and history. You really, the the most the most important thing in the sort of contemporary moment is to be able to sort of facilely shift between all of these different styles as the as the context demanded. And uh, these concerts, this concert by Nazario, really did all of that. So I'd like to close with uh, listening to her sing a traditional tune, a folk tune, um, arranged in a different way, shall we say. Uh then the folk orchestras. This is John but I don't think I have it here. Mm-hmm. No. This is the last one you did so well. Can we listen to it over here? Here it is. <laughs> Hi,
2: So many women that are, start off with a really aspiring career in their 20s or something end up kind of losing that career path because they, they end up going back into the. Do you think more that has to do with like the rice youth movement or anything? Do you think does it come from China or does it come from India? It I'm not asking you a question. It comes mostly, I think, from the uh, masculine you know, yeah professional
0: okay. society but well, I guess it seems like there's this isn't a dynamic just no not at all I mean as you saw do is still she's sort of a narrative she only does the opera and she has been do the ballation and she does fewer concerts, but she's still giving up on that stage. But she knows as soon as she steps off, right, her her status as the of the musical world, you know, becomes a little shakier. So um, certainly the only place where I saw that was the young women's guitar ensembles, right, where they would, once you hit about 30, uh, you do see them get shifted into different folk performance groups that aren't the... the because you're really no longer a cuz, right? You're no longer a young girl, you're an unmarried woman sort of framework. Um, but yeah, I guess, yeah, I wonder if part of that has to do very specifically with this Soviet project to get women on the concert stage, right? And maybe it's just that they got them on as youth, and then they just wouldn't get off. You know, when I think about Fiyuza Abu you know, starting her ensemble, like, nobody's gonna kick her off the boat yet. She's the founder of that ensemble, right? And my my teachers, both uh, Rosa Hidalgo and Mari Zayaba is very proud of the fact that but she's a grandma and she goes on international tours with Munezaki Machiva, right? So certainly, uh, I don't I don't see a lot of that except in these very specific places. I mean, youth, as in a lot of places, youth is considered valuable and beautiful and uh, a, an important sort of way of displaying the vitality of the national project, but it's not the only way. I think that I think that age is respected. We can think of that in a Western art music framework as well, right? Leon Fletcher, right, a famous pianist, lost the use of a hand and we still want to go here and play because he's just that amazing. And so I think that you get a little bit of that with age I mean, in addition to the fact that at least as far within my experience in culture, there's a there's a very strong veneration of elders. Uh, but also, yeah, within within a sort of institutional music education framework, you want the people who are the highest skilled. And virtuosity isn't something that is dependent on youth, right? So, yeah, I mean, I have aside from the specific young young people's ensembles, I have some. There is the idea, with wedding performance, like, there is a lot of concern among women who do wedding performance, that they don't look like, like as much an artist, right? They, they don't have as much of a pop star look to them, so maybe they're not going to be able to pull in the same amount of tips, they're not going to get as many invitations. So I, I don't want to kiss it off as if there's nothing of that. There is this idea that, you know, yeah, it's a little harder to play weddings when you're a grandma, because um, people want want to consume music performed by youths. I think pop music as well certainly sees a lot more of that as it does in other places. Does that answer
2: your question? Yeah, yeah I was wondering um, how far do these traditionally marked national Uzbek um, ways of singing and instruments, how far does it go into pop? Um, you know, do, do you do you get hip-hop? <laughs> You do get a little bit of
0: hip-hop. You get hip-hop with national instruments sometimes and synthesizers. You tend to, hip-hop tends to, there's a real, it's really trebly there, hip-hop. It's very sort of, Russians, I think you had Ruki there uh, in the, is that the 80s or the 90s? Did you hear Ruki Berth? 90s, yeah. You there in the in the 90s, which was sort of a big Russian hip-hop group, one of the early ones. Uh, and so I'm amazed at how many, like, what is it, Bolad and these, these sort of usually men's hip hop groups, and uh, it's usually it's usually sort of a boy band thing. And um, but yeah, they have that sort of they have that sort of really trebly Russian hip hop. Not that they're singing in Russian, they're often rapping in Uzbek, but they still have that sort of trebly Russian pop sound. I'm not sure why. Certainly there are other hip hop traditions that come through um, internationally, but the, the Russian one was the one that seems copied for mass consumption, but uh, you do get, it, it's an interesting question, and again, it's these nuances of how you perform nationalism, and popular music sort of producers and whatnot have very specific ideas about how that should happen. You should have traditionally dressed dancers doing something like traditional dance, which means not a lot of hip movement, right, arms, and, and wrists a lot Um, in traditional dress. You should have a frame drum, often in addition to a drum machine. Uh, You should have a synthesized version of the shong. One of the most common aural markers of Uzbek pop is this shong sound on the synthesizer. Um, I don't think I have any for you, but everyone who plays weddings has their synthesizer program or mini-disc. Here all over the place, and it's, again, it's sort of one of the ways that you announce weddings or celebrations of any kind is with these strong long-trumpet things, traditionally, so this is a sort of synthesized version. Um, vocally, you don't get a lot of that. The exception is Sivar Nazar Khan, um, who was a pop star in Uzbekistan. Um, would you like musical illustrations of this? Do we have time for that? Yeah, let's listen to a little bit of Savaranazar. Nazar Khan. Okay. Um, She's sort of one of the exceptions. So this is sort of Savara Nazarhan's Uzbek pop, a la Uzbek pop, maybe? There we go. Although no sham in this one, I'm sorry. typical let our uh, push think you might have heard it at the beginning of the talk before I started talking. So she released a version of classical music that is very much like classical music. Let's hear, we'll listen to her do Adolata Nevada, which we heard the, the the folk ensemble do, right? So, there's a do talk. So, this is a fairly standard iteration of this particular It actually sounds remarkably like what you heard in the video, if you can remember back to that. Right? You have vamping guitars and vocalists uh, using some of these cult ornaments that you hear these in the lab, right? What's interesting is um, in 2003, Real World Records released a version of many of these tunes. Uh, released for the international market, not for the Uzbek pop market, but for the international market. It was called Yule Bolson, one of the tunes that he's you going, it's an expression. Um, and so what uh, happens is a French producer Hector Zazu, was brought in to arrange these traditional tunes with sort of electronica overlays. So let's listen to a little bit of that. This is the one sort of moment where you get these vocal ornaments that really mark Uzbek nationalism uh, retained in a sort of pop packaging, uh, but they're so layered. And one of the things that's interesting is when you think about how to market uh, non-Western artists to the world, there's a sort of anonymization process in making them more representative sort of general Asian-ness, And there's a sort of oriental fantasy going on, a la Edward Said. and so I think that what you see is she's actually being sort of enveloped by electronica, and her voice isn't as front and center. So even though she's including these noah, they're not as audible uh, because they've got a bunch of electronica over it. So let's hear the real world records version of um, Adela Tanawara. Stuff there, but that gives you a sense that you've got the electronica, the same basic text um, and the same version. And this was not as popular in Uzbekistan as it was actually. It got covered on NPR. There was a bit of there was a bit of buzz around this in 2003, 2004, uh, and it was sort of people audiences in Uzbekistan who were used to on either in her classical guys or in her unseen pop tunes guys. They sort of weren't sure what to make of this real world. So that's the one moment where
1: you get that help. All right. So the hour is getting late, but Tanya was supposed to stick around for the reception. Uh, I want to mention a couple things first. Uh, there is a flyer right around with upcoming Ellison Center events. There's a lot of stuff on the screen. Uh, if they're not outside, you might see them uh, floating around in the room. There are Tanya's books on that table there for purchase that Tanya will sign in. Um, and, and there's food in the back. So uh, please help yourself, and uh, please join me to thank Tanya Merchant.